And now, the Rathband Tapes. Episode 2, The Night is in Question. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Whatever time it is, welcome to the Rathband Tapes. I'm Tony Horn in Lancashire, England, ghostwriter to the late PC David Rathband in South Australia, his twin brother Darren. We're revisiting David's entire story and for the first time hearing conversations that David and I shared in the writing of his book Tango 190. Conversations nobody, including Darren, has ever heard. So you're hearing this for the first time. Some of it's not easy. Some of it we've left out. We won't cover everything and some bits we'll visit briefly and return to later. Some names will only be on a first name basis to protect identities of people who perhaps don't want to be caught up in this story. If you hear the names Stobart, that's Sam Stobart, Ness, that's Carl Ness, Awan, that's Coram Awan, and Moat, well that's just Moat, um, they are some of the individuals concerned as several lives collided. In the last episode we spoke of events building up to the 4th of July 2010, including the death of Chris Brown. But now it's time to look at 12.42. The time, 12.42, an area of dispute in the future as two different control rooms at Northumbria Police were 15 minutes apart. I'd like to start today by reflecting on what David learned at the trial of Ness and Awan, the accomplices of Moat. Some of David's words reflect what he felt in the moment and some of them reflect what he learned later. This he learned for the first time at trial, how exactly he was shot. They'd pulled up and I was, they'd actually driven past me, as I said to you, on the roundabout. They went up to Headenley Hole. They dismantled a phone and put it behind a, a street sign with, in a plastic bag, a green plastic bag. Um, then come back round after, that was after they'd phoned the 999 job in. Put it behind a sign on the road so they could remember where they'd put it, so they could come back to it. They'd come back after they'd shot me. They rang 999 as they passed me. They were obviously all present. They then drove up Headenley Hole. He told Ness to dismantle the phone and put it in a bag, so he did. They then drove back to where I was. I mean, it was all very planned out and, you know, thoughtful. But so then they came back, round the roundabout, went southbound on the A1, and they did a U-turn on Scotswood Road. So they come northbound on the A1, parked the car, turned, he told Awan to turn the lights off, and then he ran up to the, to the corner, d dipped out, one bang, Two seconds later, he had another one. Uh, couldn't see me, couldn't see the police car. And he came then running back round. And then at that point, I was getting um, quite... I wouldn't get quite... So I got a couple of tears in my eyes, and I just held my head in my hands. 
So when David says there he had some tears in his eyes and held his head in his hands, he's referring to hearing that at court, obviously, in the moment he shot and left for dead. He's quite breathy, quite energetic in his narration of that story. And I do have another clip which I will not share, but David always used to refer to the tink in the glass so he sat there he's texted darren some time before he's positioned himself somewhere near the junction of the a1 and the a69 he's mindful of atrocities in carlisle three weeks before the speed with which he narrates that there again based on how he learned it in court i think reflects how quickly everything descended upon him. But equally, you have to understand that we're running at two paces here, incredible speed, but your life will flash before you in slow motion. I think what we take from that evidence again there, Darren, is uh, David the policeman, full-on professional mode, also the element of planning. And we'll come to this at another point. Many people said to David, including myself, you have to accept you were the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. David expressed to me from a very early stage that he felt he was targeted. Raoul Mote had a history of collecting collar numbers of the many police officers he dealt with. Tango 190 your guy. It's the most testing passage to listen back to David talking about the moment of impact. Um, but Darren, that's what happened. Yeah. Um, I'm um, a bit lost for words, really. That um, actually makes me feel quite sick. Um, listening to that uh, and you're right um, the impact of that is I can hear that he is not narrating he's actually there he's telling you um, <sighs> what what actually happened at that particular time and that's let's face it that's what that's what you would do as a victim or somebody involved in something as significant as this. Um, he's lost that element of professionalism and stoicism and let's do it in you know, organised. He's living that moment and that's that absolutely made me want to be, be sick. Um, and the important thing is also, as well, Tony, with that is to know that that could have been any police officer in Northumbria. And it's not, I don't, look, it's easy to put blame. And we're, like, having been a policeman for a number of years, the idea of hindsight is what the police are always judged by when it's in regards to anybody other than one of their own. When, and this is through experience. When it's one of their own and they can be held accountable, Hindsight never comes into it within that police service. And this is clear, for me, this is clearly one of those issues. They knew 
Um, and I'm sure you're going to cover the phone call. It's clearly in public domain. They knew he was going to target a police officer. Um, and David wasn't the first police officer he saw. There was one that turned into a police station, I believe, that was in his sights. And he escaped what David got. Um, I have to say, I find this bit very, very difficult. And you mentioned one other policeman. There, there was a chip shop robbery, I think, that preceded that. There's an element that we will come to where Moat and the accomplices pull up at a McDonald's and a police officer pulls up alongside. And one of the accomplices says something like, don't you want to do him, Raoul? And somebody else says, let him finish his McFlurry. Now, that becomes a theme because it says so much. You know, on one level, there's comedy in this, black comedy. And let's let's make no bones about this. David, like Darren, has a very dark sense of humour. There I am in the present tense again. There's also the level of absurdity that someone would finish a McFlurry before finishing off a cop. There's also that element of chance and randomness that whoever that police officer was, and we know who he was, um, it could have been him. And Darren makes a great point there about it could have been anyone, but also David did feel he was targeted. I wasn't going to jump to this clip now. In later conversations David talks with pride about how he took one for the force that night and the fact that he was able to get on the police radio obviously seeking help but also saving others is a moment of true courage um and here's what he said. I just thought I deserved a miracle after what I'd been through. Because after what I'd done, you know, I'd, um, you know, I'd, I'd survived in my car. I'd managed to get stuff over the radio. And I honestly believe, you know, if I hadn't have got on that radio, he would have carried on shooting that night. Because I think what I did managed the police, obviously, on mass to come out. And bear in mind, there were over 40 police cars there when he came back. Um, he would have been not flushed out, but flushed back in, if you know what I mean. I find that hard to, to listen to. And as an aside, in the preparation of the the audio here for the conversations with Darren, um, I think both of us have realised that thoughts that we've had for over a decade now, at the time of recording, have perhaps lay dormant and... Um, yeah, it brings it all back. It it brings every moment of it back. And um, as a ghostwriter of like 20 books, I don't think I've ever had that connection or relationship or level of responsibility to the individual. And I don't think I ever will again. But there is a school of thought that can go, hey, it's a book, it's a job. 
but it makes my stomach churn too and it's very very uncomfortable I think with, with listening to David Tony the thing the thing that comes across and I, I'm I'm in a position where I've got that I don't know if it's called I'm fortunate or unfortunate that I've done the job along the same job with David and what, what I can tell you is you go through a training scheme that's supposed to educate you and train you to police and, and do a job that you haven't done before. Uh, most of the people you meet don't like you. Most of the people that don't like you have done something to a victim that probably uh, at the end of it is not going to like you. Um, and you try and go into a, a job that's got restriction after restriction, hurdle after hurdle, and you want to make a difference. Um, yes, as we know, there are bad apples in the police as well as any other job. But I strongly believe we, me and our David, we are working class lads from the council estate uh, who, when we were young, Tony, we were both called the terrible twins. And we're known in, in our childhood by our mates exactly as that. Um, and when you say the twin, the terrible twins became police officers, I'm sure a lot of our friends, teachers and people who knew us, laughed. But I can tell you one thing. David was, from what I, what I see, heard and know, was a good cop. He was down to earth. He treated people with respect. He, even Moat. Uh, and when he stopped him, uh, really that scrap. That, that, that was a national policy across all the police services to turn out scrap, scrap merchants because they usually ones committing crime. And uh, David, as you quite rightly pointed out, knew there was something untoward with this place um, and called for backup. And my brother would fight the biggest um, and wouldn't give up. Uh, but he knew he was at risk um, and he told me there's something wrong with this bloke. So I called for backup, and it, what our David said was, I I kept him sweet until I had somebody with me, um, because I knew that it could go wrong. And you know what? As a police officer, you can serve 30 years, and to meet somebody that has that significance, that you then go years down the line and say, There's some, there was something wrong with that bloke. That, you know what? That's a copper's instinct, and it's also something that um, David would have had when he went into work thinking, right, I'll get educated. And you know what, Tony, when he went in and got educated, the intel that, that Northumbria police had on the vehicle that he was in was completely wrong. So David was looking for a wrong vehicle. He could have drove past five times. David wouldn't have had a clue. Well, there's so many excellent points there. Firstly... And this is one reason why we are making this show. It feels wrong to call it a show, you know, series. Never addressed, really, the excellence of the policeman in this. Secondly, the terrible twins. Well, I think to look at the David Rathband story... We also have to go way back in time. So we'll explore the Terrible Twins. Oh, Annabelle's yeah. <laughs> Nightclub. And the guys are from Staffordshire. 
This is in the northeast of England. Don't underestimate, and we'll come to this, what joining Northumbria Police did for David's life. We'll come to that. In terms of the moment in question, I wrote these words and I've never read the book since the final read before publication. Um, and I, I'm shivering with anxiety and I don't know whether to read it, what to read, how much to read, but the impact of the shot had forced me into the footwell. I could feel the blood spraying out of my face again and I knew I had to sit up. Then he came for me once more. He wanted to see if I was dead. He fired a second time, aiming at my throat as soon as I sat up. The flesh underneath my left shoulder took all the blows. If I hadn't made that uncalculated movement to screen my face, when consciously I'd been trying to press the red triangle, then that would have been it. The red triangle, I assume, is a distress single signal in the roof of the vehicle. Yeah, that, that's on the radio, Tony. Um, if you press that, that'll stop all transmissions, yeah. put a direct link to the comms building, and it basically gives you a hot mic for a period of time. Later, David did actually describe that moment about his shoulder to me. Ralph Moat had said after he'd shot me that he'd gone back into the car and told them that um, he'd shot me. That he'd shot me in the in the head, in the face, and um, that that had thrown me on top of the radio. And um, the next, he said he t then told them that I I put another one into the back of his head. So that made me laugh because he obviously wasn't very good. I, I, th I thought that quite, um, I found it quite um, rewarding, the fact that he got everything completely wrong, the fact that he hadn't shot me in the head. I'd actually put my shoulder up. That's quite significant, that second shot. The second shot straight through the glass meant that I was probably looking at minutes left rather than hours. Moat would have been convinced I was finished. I'd slump back into the same position he would have seen me in after the first shot. The patrol car door remained open with my right foot in it. I've got to find the gear lever, I told myself. How I was having clear thoughts, I do not know. Perhaps it was my training kicking in, perhaps human instinct. Or maybe I was clinging to the last drops of good fortune. I needed to find the little red or yellow push to talk button velcroed on the side of the stalk. This would activate the radio. And then, just to underline the point that there is comedy in the tragedy, David couldn't get through on the radio. All he could hear was the sound of his blood pouring everywhere and the incessant pounding in his skull. Why couldn't he get through on the radio? Do you know the answer to that, Darren? Um, well... I'm not sure, because if you press that emergency talk, that's supposed to override everything. Well, one of his colleagues, a dog cop, <laughs> was booking off for the night. Rover was being put to bed. <laughs> and of all the of all the 
timings. Do you, you, know. Do you know what, Tony? That that just to, so the listeners can actually understand uh, and put it into some context. That that emergency button in a in a week, um, even I probably say even in Newcastle, uh, very rarely gets pressed. That'd be like a big fight outside one of the northeast um, nightclubs where a cop or some uh, you obviously it's a police officer. They're on the floor getting their head caved in, and either that police yeah. officer or somebody else says, "We need some backup. We need it out." So, and I'm sure it gives an audible uh, noise to say that's what's been pressed. What people cannot understand, well, they will when we tell them, but they will not have given a second thought to anything other than the images that they've seen of David shot but he does have self-awareness at this point he is still conscious and he's very very lonely he says I was broken and there's a period that you guess probably lasted seconds but felt a lifetime as he is waiting for somebody to acknowledge him when he finally gets the signal through. And David told me Andy Nicholson said... He said he's just been shot. Find out where David is on his sat-nav. Do a GPS on him. Tango 190. Needed help. And then... His world turned to blackness. He told me, Darren, that he died in that car... And he also told me there was no way in the world he was dying in that car. I think both are true. Yeah, and I think if you put it into context with his life after the the press balloon burst and everything else went downhill, I think he would have probably wished he had. Um, and that that moment, you know, Tony, where you're sat, and this is irrespective of being a police officer, this could happen to anybody, Um you, it's just you and you've got that fight or flight and you've got two options it doesn't matter if you're policeman, police sergeant um, firearms, dog PCSO you are, it's you and you know what you realise? you realise that organisation is it can be as big as it wants to be you're on your own you're on your own and it's just you you've got to fight all those feelings to stop breathing to, you know what I mean to give up and David for all his um, traits he had the tenacity to, and the will to survive and he, and he clearly said and you know what what, what you said you mentioned something about level the, the shotgun for the second shot what, what you got to remember is the first shot took David's eyes off he had no eyes, 
um, the the impact of that first shell smashed one eye, uh, retina and stuff out. There was nothing left of that one. And the one that was remained was, I only ever saw it once, Tony, and it made, it made me feel, that made me want to be sick. It, it was just, just surreal. It looked like a dry pruning and just, it didn't work. The retina had been severed. He had no heart attack. So how he saw that second shot is anybody's guess. But he did enough to stop him getting shot again, point blank in the face. There's a few points there. Again, I flagged this up, but we will deal and we're the the only place where this conversation's happened i think in the last decade in public but we'll deal with i am now blind we will deal with that he did in the moments just before blackness and passing out have images of the children and kath and one thing one thing david always used to say to me you know ash his son was was tiny one born yeah, wasn't he? Was. he was premature and yeah. ash always came in a massive figure uh in these moments later we'll discover as a blind man how david struggled to see whole images of people but we will deal with that when we talk about the blind leading the blind i think one thing that strikes my heart in all of that is how everything can change in a minute here we are we're texting my brother on the other side of the world hey he's a cop what's he doing texting his brother but look live in the real world you know at every moment in every day people are multitasking and they're doing work they're on a call they're looking at their email they're texting you know, it's not a place for criticism. It's a moment of downtime and what was a quiet shift. And that's the point. Because in a moment, everything changed. And a lot of things change in life and can be reverted back. Or they can change for progress. But this is a point of no return. Literally, the lights went out and they never came back on. It's really hard to talk about. It's really hard to listen to. Darren, as a twin, reflecting on it now, a decade later, I'm going to guess that you feel some guilt. Um, I, I, yeah, there is, there is a bit of guilt. Um, and it's, it's certainly not focused on... Uh, and you, you use that word focused. How ironic is that? Um, and David was really good at picking those up, as you know, Tony. Oh. David was a gem for saying, um, I'll meet you at 12. Yeah. How will I recognise you? After everything. I'll uh, see you later. And it was wonderful. Yeah. And I walked into it every and, and time. And you know what? The, the, <laughs> you mentioned black humour <clears throat> earlier on. Unfortunately, black humour in uh, the emergency services. And let's face it, 
there's always going to be people that think the police are they're out to persecute me. Well, let's face it. If usually, if you're being persecuted by the police um, and you've caused somebody else some harm, distress, or upset, I'm not talking about general motorists, motorists, working class, getting dumped on mobile phone. It's the people after that, the, the ones on mobile phones that run over somebody, some nine-year-old kid uh, who's walked into the street. Because that then that's in, that has an impact on those families. So come on, let's face it. We're the worst of the worst, but when you need us, we're the best of the best. David didn't shy away from that. And the black humour side of it is, or was, a tool that you need in that sort of job to lessen the effects that this, that this contact with these people have on you. We, we, like I said to you earlier, we, we meet people at the worst time of their life and we get to carry some of their burden. Um, and you know what? We are human. We, we take it home. I've cried. I've given a death message and cried like a baby. And then thought, this ain't very professional. The mother of that person thanked me for being so compassionate. And David was compassionate. And the point is, that black humour is an ability to process, discharge some of that uh, extra burden that we take on. Like, we take on the fact that people... And they hate us, and you know what? That's part and parcel of the job. We still try to make that difference. David, he, 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 do you know what? He, even when he gets shot, he wants to make a difference to other people. He, he wants to make sure nobody else gets hurt. And do you know what? David was the first person to say he wasn't a hero. But do you know what? He was mine before that, during it, and he still is now. So people can say what they want about cops. But they need to realise, if your brother, son, uncle was a police officer, you'd be living through the same horrible, tragic circumstances that our family has done. So we, we, we're normal people. And to, to balance that, I don't have a lot of love for the police. Personally, I don't. It's not based on anything. Tony, I've worked um, for them for nearly 30 years. And I think there is a element of the police that really need to look at what they're doing um, in regard to how they police and, wh and what their policies are. Um, and that's not for rank and file. I can tell you for a fact, rank and file police officers are being smashed all over the country. Both hours, load, the ability to deal with victims. Yeah. That, and the reason why victim, one of the reasons why victims are frustrated with the police and then become alienated like the perpetrator of the crime against them is the fact they get no contact or limited contact with the police officers because they're too busy and you mentioned earlier with david the flo the family liaison officer oh david loved that job he absolutely loved it um and i know he had a massive effect with numerous families about the way he dealt with uh, their unfortunate loss due to traffic incidents and here we have that moment where the policeman the witness the victim <laughs> now requires his own flow family liaison officer i'm going to re-ask you the question do you as a yeah, twin like, feel, I, that was like a deflection <laughs> um, yeah i do um and that there are two main reasons why I feel guilt. And um, 
this is what I've got to live with for the rest of my life. The first, the first element that I feel responsible for is the fact that after David was shot, and I, I decided that if I didn't put something in place, he would give up. I thought it best to start a charity for him. So in the background, why he was in hospital, I thought of and put into motion the Blue Lamp Foundation. So he had something when it all went um, wrong within the police. Because Tony, I knew it, I knew where he was with his eyesight. I knew that it would come to an end. That's my first piece of grief, putting that into place, because I'm not sure if that helped, hindered, put off or caused him to become disillusioned part of the process with Kath and, and everything else. And the second bit of grief, guilt. I'm not sure if it, I'm not sure if I feel guilty about it. And this is, people may think this is difficult. When David left me in Australia, having returned again from going back home for Christmas, he came back and told me various, he asked, he sat me down and asked me to do various things in regards to if something should happen. Reassured me, nothing would happen. There was an element of me, Tony, that knew, knowing David, knowing me, what was possibly going to happen. And I thought it would have happened earlier. And again, that's the link to the charity and keeping him busy. He drove off, said, I love you, Darren. And never, never turned, never just said that and drove, drove out of my driveway with Andrew's car. <clears throat> and um, I, I knew then that that would be the last time. You have, to, you have to bear with me. Because um, I can see that now. Um, he drove off. And having said that, I knew that was the last time I'd see my brother. Um, and I could have stopped. <laughs> and that's. That is the most that on its own is flat. But I think when you love somebody, and I can count on one hand people in this category and still have digits left, you crave one more conversation with them. And just to show that this um, tale has the darkest, most poignant moments, but also has the blackest of humour. Do you know the conflict there, Tony? Is that, and and this is this is what I struggle with. It's not so much. There is an element of that um, guilt, but. I love my brother. My brother was my, my hero at school. He stuck up for me. He was my, he was one and a half minutes older than me. And he looked after, he, he looked after me when I was growing up. If I got bullied at school, he, he would go and sort it out and, and did on occasion. 
when I was in my teenage years, he would stand up. We got into bother, as we often did, and he would stand, he would step in front of me. And watching him drive off broken, going from that big brother to a broken man who looked like he had nothing left in him. For me, that was the... I didn't want to see my brother like that. that that's not what I remember. I don't want to remember David like that. I never went into the um, house of rest to see David. And I've, I've seen dead bodies. I've seen them in positions that you won't want to see them in. Uh, positions where you think they can't be dead. How would you, how would you sit in that position? But I've, I, I've seen it, Tony, and I, I didn't want to see David. Um, and my partner, Angie, he, she went in. And um, spoke to him and dressed him, did his hair. We swapped. Um, dual, I took a bangle, a, a, a full bangle off him, a bangle, and we swapped. And you know what? I, I try and I try not to look at this image of him with his different coloured eyes, his blue eyes, and scars that he picked here, picking pieces of lead out of his chip bones. But you know what? I'm, the one thing I'm glad about is he stopped suffering. He, he stopped hurting. And you know what? I don't need to ask. You know the biggest thing, Tony, with people that do take their lives, and I, I, I felt the pain. They ask that question, why? I don't have that question, why? I know why. Um, the point of that, I think, is relevant now because as an observer, as I was at the time, and remember, Darren is in the air as David is lying gasping for air. It became very clear very quickly that here was a man, a brother, a father, a husband, a colleague who was already on borrowed time. And I'll ask Darren ahead of his mind when he walked into that hospital room, but to the night in question, I'm stunned that he survived. It breaks both our hearts and many other people's hearts to know that he survived that, but that life took him. And there's only one consolation in that. And Darren was very smart in his language all the time in that when David did die, none of us ever said Moat killed him. So David ultimately had and did make the choice. And you can have whatever opinion you like, according to your faith or according to your analysis of mental health or personal circumstances, but I think we have to tell you that when I said the lights went out, the lights went out in so many ways we'll come to a passage in the future of where david talks about realizing that he couldn't do any of this on his own that's a couple of weeks forward just a 14 days on 
from this moment. But this moment is frozen in time. He is left for dead in a police vehicle. A gunman and his two accomplices are on the loose and they can do heaven only knows what more. Having already ducked the guy at Seton Delaval whilst they were having their McFlurries. There's blood pouring all over the police car. David is summoning every last moment of energy to get on the police radio. How he did that is actually a story that's almost too good to be true because he was dead. You know, he was dead. And there's an illusion there of what went on in the control room that night. Again, we will come to what the officers and call operatives knew. Because what we haven't actually spelled out is that, even though da David mentioned it, I think earlier in the clip, Moat rang in. And many people would have heard the audio in the time that followed this, but perhaps need a reminder... He said, I'm hunting cops. I'm the gunman from Bertley last night. Subject to some legal argument, there appears to be approximately a 15-minute window in which that warning was not passed to the officers on the ground. I'm not a policeman. I'm not a lawyer. I can make bad decisions in life. But I do think that if an atrocity, an assassination had happened the night before and I received a call and I knew it was the gunman from Bertley, I think I would have hit whatever comms were available to me to say, I have to take this seriously while we check it out. The alleged gunman from last night has rung in and says he's hunting cops. All cops do not remain stationary. Given, as well, the events of Carlisle a few weeks before, I'm not saying you had a dry run, but that would be in your subconscious. It is horrific to think that there was that opportunity, and I don't think even the most vocal defender of Northumbria Police could sit here and say, no, we did nothing wrong. I think anybody could say, yeah, if we had our time again, we'd have put that out. Unfortunately, whatever litigation followed, whatever bravado followed, whatever the right noises were for the press in the week where the manhunt ensued, there's a window there in which an innocent guy didn't know that there was a legitimate threat. And I think I've summed that up right, Darren. You can't uh, really argue you can with that. If you're can you? the, uh, well, at the time, QC, Queen's Council for <laughs> Northumbria Police. Um, what did you say? If, the, if your listeners or our listeners can just sit there and just say, what would I have done? 
had I been in that position, having just been told by a gunman who's already shot two people, I'm after one of yours, knowing that it's a credible threat, he's got a firearm, he's mobile, he's not pinpointed. Doesn't common sense say, give them the information so they can make educated decisions, i.e. And, and the i.e. is a simple, all patrols, re the shooting from last night, the police officers patrol will know exactly what that was. Please be advised, call just taken from gunman, he is out targeting police officers. Return to your station or stay mobile until further notice. Yeah, I've thought about that in about 10 seconds. I've probably had 12 years. I could have done that on the night, Tony. The, uh, the argument in court is that they had somebody who, who was a controller asked to make that. Tell the court now what you would say. He was that unprepared. On the night David was shot, he couldn't make that call. In court, how funny, he couldn't work out what to say then. Staged, or was it that he was still incompetent in court? Ahead, we will look at the period that followed. I wrote it in the book as Seven Nights in Rothbury. Uh, it's an extraordinary period. Rothbury, a beautiful village i would suggest not town about 45 minutes west of newcastle upon tyne in the hills probably never ever been on the news before a place we understand moat had spent some time in the past a place despite being on the radio for many years in the northeast i'd never heard of again that's extraordinary isn't it that there are people's names, innocent lives, locations that just come bumping into us headlong. What followed in Rothbury was, in my opinion, Northumbria police at their best and also at their most exposed. We'll deal with that. On the night in question, what I know from David is the protocol that followed you only saw the images when you woke up on that sunday morning of a shattered police car and inevitably as darren alluded in the previous episode front page newspapers of david's face but there's still a police operation in place and it, i think it's quite hard sometimes for people outside of a police investigation so almost all of us to understand what that means in summary darren that means we've got a scene of the crime we've got a dying man we've got a man on the loose and his accomplices we've got protocol we've got the way we do things we've got agreed operations procedure we've got one of our own out for the count and not coming back but still there's a police operation and i got a little insight into this uh from david 
the number of officers that rushed to the scene and despite agreed protocol for an emergency scenario there was a loyalty to David that was personal there was a loyalty to a colleague knowledge that it could have been one of their own and some of those officers brilliantly in my opinion acted as human beings as well as being police officers my last re uh, memories were Nathan speaking, Steve Wynn but I can remember seeing or knowing that Paul and um, Chris had been, you see mm. And then we had this conversation, and I said to him, "What can you remember? What 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 happened? What were you there? Where were you?" And they basically told me that w what they'd done, they'd been in that, that end of Newcastle, mm. and they'd heard the call come. And I think I'd said to you, "They must no, they must have come um, southbound on the A1 because Nathan came from the other way." So I think they came southbound on the A1, but I'm not sure. But they heard the call come in, and they they're the ones that said they were waiting for the control room to say all officers do not attend the scene go to RVP point which and believe it or not the RVP point would have been somewhere like Tesco's at Kingston Park right or it would have been um, where else would they have probably done it they'd have probably done it at the Denton Burn Hotel right or um Leamington Road ends. Uh, it would have been completely out of the way. And they said, they both said to each other simultaneously in the car, if that comes through, we're both going. Are you happy? Yes, we're going. Regardless. And then they, I think Paul came over to the car with Chris um, and they both were trying to help, but obviously didn't want to get in the way of Steve, Paul, Nathan and, and um, Sean. And I think Paul realised well, Paul and Chris both realised how gravely injured I was. And they both decided that they needed to fetch Kath, you see, and they both knew her. So they both turned. Paul said to Chris, I think it was Paul said to Chris, right, we'll go, we'll go and fetch Kath. We'll go, we'll go and get Kath. She needs to, you know, she needs to get to the hospital. So they both walked off, walked past up to Ian Day, who's my sergeant. David's wife, she needs to be to be collected and she needs to be here now and he just walked off got in the car it was all Steve Wynn who was the first there and then obviously there was a few inspectors come and both Paul and Chris got in a car and, and got, in, got up to my house like breakneck speed to fetch Kathy so. it's quite a good detail there there's a lot of names there's a lot of names there which I think underlines the point there's a lot of I think heartwarming comment the two guys the when they said we need to go and fetch Kath, David's wife, what are they saying? They're saying, this guy ain't going to make it. And they acted as human beings there. And I won't say, and not as police officers. They acted as human beings and as police officers. I find that quite tough to listen to, if I'm honest with you. Because... It does represent the chaos of the scene. It also outlines, and Darren knows this as an officer, when you've got a crime scene, 
You've got to preserve the scene in the same moment that you are preserving the damaged within it. And you know the difficult thing there as well, Tony? You've got, you've not only got that scene, they're still dealing and processing the scene from where Chris and um, Snowball got injured. So we have an incident last night which had murder, but he's low profile. <laughs> now that doesn't mean that doesn't mean the lack of that it doesn't mean the lack of resource. Forensic investigations teams were any less. But yes, it's a rarity. Well Google, how many people are shot dead in Newcastle? So that happened. So that was a shock to the system. It also underlines what Darren said in the previous episode about how we're playing catch-up because the, the correction services had alluded to the fact that Moat was a threat. But here we have a moment where David is not dead, but he's all but dead, and it has it's resonated. You know what, Tony? The feeling of the fact that you are not going to be or could possibly not be here for much longer not only scares me and the word is to death <laughs> scares me to death but the feeling of david not being ju- just take being shot and then being in a footwell of a car that mic that button on your mic and i can tell you for a fact is when you able sighted daylight hours it, it's still difficult then to press go these cars have got buttons and stuff that you've got to press for certain things david's not only lost his eyesight he's, he doesn't even know where this bloke is all he's heard is that clinker glass bang eyesight's gone the first shots hit him as people will know but some people won't know right in the middle of his eyes top of his nose gone second one like we've said earlier he i don't know how he sees it but he obviously doesn't it must be it must be either a freak of nature, but he sees what he thinks is him lifting the barrel of the gun up, turns and gets shot in the uh, in his shoulder. That and I saw that injury, Tony. That when you look at that, that injury looked insignificant. All the damage had been done in the first one, and to feel just to think of him lying in the car in a footwell. You know what? The the the, the only positive that came out of that particular time is the fact that his colleagues did what they did uh, against all the other bureaucracy that you're told not to go in, stay out of here. They they would have contravened that and they went to help one of their own, just like David would have done. And that's what that's the only thing you can ask for. So, Darren is in the air. Two colleagues are racing to Blythe in Northumberland to bring Kath to the hospital. David is all but gone. Around him, his colleagues merge as investigators and as helpers. There is still a gunman on the loose with two accomplices. All roads, well, just one, lead to Rothbury. And that's where we'll head next time as the story continues. Next time on the Rap Band Tapes. It showed you on the telly the wolf getting off a bus. And he was a sergeant. But it was Ray Mears. 
With thanks to series consultant Rob Jones, this is a Horny Media and Publishing Production.